Good morning. Good morning. I have the pleasure this morning of coming to you and preaching God's word. Um, so get comfortable. I know it's a little warm in here. I'm going to leave my jacket on if that's okay. But uh, we've opened the doors. We've turned the heater off. So um, just bear with, uh, with the temperature if you would. This morning I'd like to preach to you about identity theft. No. No, it doesn't mean that I've stolen Samuel's identity and replaced him here in the, in the pulpit. Um, but it does mean that I think today the Lord has something to teach us. And I pray that we would all listen, myself first and foremost. So would you please open God's word this morning. If you're using the Pew Bibles, would you please turn to page 986. 986, we'll be reading from Book of Romans, chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Please follow along as I read God's word for us this morning. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Amen. This is God's word for us this morning. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your precious word that is righteous and instructs us in all godliness and wisdom. I thank you for what you are about to do this morning, Lord, and that is convict us of what we need to be convicted of. And Lord, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing and acceptable to you. In Christ Jesus, amen. So today we're going to talk about identity. You're going to hear the word identity a lot. It's an important topic. It's important that we know who we are. And it's important that we identify what it means when identity theft happens spiritually. I'll be talking about examples of identity theft that happen in the world, but I want us to be focused on what it means for us to lose our identity and to steal someone else's identity. 
But before we begin this process of identity, let's pause to meditate on what is the definition of identity. And there are lots out there, and your identity and my identity have many dimensions. But I just want to focus on two today. Every identity has these two dimensions. First of all is our knowledge of our identity. Do we know who we are? And second of all is society's knowledge of it. That is to say, how do we show who we are? So these are the two kind of dimensions that I want to focus on today. How do we know who we are, and how do we show who we are? They need to be linked, don't they? Okay? Um, I've had some personal experiences with identity. We all have. Uh, being Hispanic, raised on the border, I can tell you about, um, you know, being second generation, American, Mexican, right? And there's this identity uh, growth that happens, and sometimes there's an identity conflict about who am I? I'm rejected from the Mexican community because I'm not Mexican enough, speak English too well. And sometimes I'm rejected by the American community because I, I, I come from a place that doesn't look like the rest of the world, although in Texas we're getting there, okay? Someday we'll all be Hispanic in Texas, amen? Uh, but I had this interesting story, this interesting experience. I was, I was in Matamoros, the border city to where I grew up in Brownsville, Texas, and I had taken my eight-month-old son, Elijah, with me to a wedding of, of a dear friend. And on the way back, crossing the border, and the, you know, this would have been 2003 or 2004, um, on the way back, I was asked for my son's birth certificate. And growing up on the border, we didn't deal with birth certificates. You just crossed and came back. You know, it was no big deal. And I didn't realize that there was a change in policy. Nobody had told me because I didn't grow up that way. So I said, I don't have his birth certificate, this, my precious eight-month-old son here. And the Border Patrol officer said, well, we can't let you in with him. I said, but he's my son. I know he's my son. I saw when he was born. And they said, well, we have a problem with Mexican babies being brought across the border illegally and stolen and so forth and so on. I said, I said well, um, here he is. And they said, well, he doesn't look like you. I said, well, is he Mexican or isn't he Mexican? I mean, you can't have it both ways, right? But I had no way to prove, although I knew that this child was mine and we belonged to each other, I had no way to prove that. And I was there for two, three hours arguing with everybody, um, I was a new Christian at the time, so, you know, I sinned so many times. I said, this is ridiculous, you know. Finally, a dear man, a dear older gentleman came in. He's a supervisor. He comes in, and he goes, and it was Sunday morning, I remember, because I said, well, call your wife. Well, my wife's in church, and she didn't have a cell phone at the time. So uh, I had no proof. So the dear man says, do you have proof that you traveled with this infant? I said, Yes. And I pulled out my airline ticket, and it said, with infant. That's all it said. And he looked at it, he goes, okay, you can go. I sinned again. I said, that was a ridiculous experience, but it got me through. And it got me thinking about today. Sometimes we know who we are, but we can't show it, right? And it's a very frustrating experience. Recently, I had another experience of identity. Um, those of you know, my father passed away recently. And... When my father had a heart attack and then a stroke, and I, I went down to Brownsville to see him, and I walked in the ICU room, everybody knew who I had talked to that I was his son. Say, oh, it says here 
on the document. I showed him my ID. They said, oh, you're his heir. You're his oldest son. I said, yes. But when I walked in that room, I had no identity as his son. For we had been estranged. And because he had not been the father to me, I had never learned what it meant to be a son to him. So I prayed. I said, Lord, I don't know what I'm supposed to do as this man's son right now as he's dying. But the Lord gave me the identity of a son. And the Lord told me, you sacrifice for him. You love him. No matter what has happened before, you give yourself to him right here and right now, and I'll take care of the rest. So for one week, I held my father's hand. I sang to him. I washed his brow as he sweat and went through the stroke and so forth. And a week later, he passed away. And I can truly say now that at least for that window, I knew what it was to be a son. I I had my identity back. God graciously gave me that with a man who I didn't think I could ever love. That's what God does. He gives us an identity of love. This is common. When I'm talking to you, all of you have a story like this to share with all of us. This is part of what it means to be human. And it's just not about us as individuals, is it? Groups can have identities, okay? Underneath my shirt here, I've got Westlake. Uh, I'm not going to take my shirt off. I've got Westlake on there. Westlake just won their football game, and that's important in life, right? Football. But oftentimes, teams, you, talk, you hear about teams developing an identity as a group where one, no one person is more important than the other, and that's how you win when you sacrifice for each other. So this idea of identity is all around us. Who are you? Can you show it? And then when we gather as a group, who are we? Don't we talk like that? We say, we're Park Hills Baptist Church. What does that mean? What is our identity? Who do we know to be, and who do we show the world to be? Well, this problem or this issue of identity is not new. And today, we're going to read about a church that was struggling with an identity. 2,000 years ago, the church in Rome was experiencing an identity crisis of sorts. The letter of Paul to the Romans was an attempt to remind the church of who its unique and unified identity needed to lie with, namely Christ Jesus. And this is the refrain that runs throughout the letter of Romans. Listen to Romans 7.4. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to one another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. There's a wonderful picture of identity there. We belong to one another. But what was the problem? The problem was in the Roman Christian church, there were two groups, Jews and Gentiles. Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And the gospel had first transformed Jews into Christians in Rome. We know that. But as is often the case during the Roman experience, at some point in the middle of the first century, the Romans had expelled all the Jews. And with them went the Jewish Christians. So the Roman church for a season was left with nothing but Gentile Christians, and they became leaders in the church. And then as has often happened, the next Roman Caesar comes and allows the Jews back in. And so now the Jewish Christians come back into the Roman Christian church, but it looks a little different, right? So now there is an identity crisis of sort. The Jewish Christians want the Roman church to look Jewish. The Gentile Christians want the, Gen- the Roman Christian church to look Gentile. And this is what Romans is about. 
It's convincing each other that we only have one identity. All I have is Christ. That's it. So today's topic of identity theft has to do with the case when we step out of who we are, who our true identity is in Christ, and try to take on the role of another. To begin this, though, let's go back to Romans 13.11. I want to read Romans 13.11 for you. Because <clears throat> Romans 14.1 is a continuation of this thought. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, and not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And now let's read Romans 14. 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. So you see how Paul is continuing this pulse, this purpose of unity in the church. We need to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are clothed with Christ, he is your identity. He is what people see, and he is what you see. As I, I know what I'm wearing this morning, I looked in the mirror. Actually, I just asked Diane, is this okay? As a good husband should. And I know what I'm wearing. When I wear Christ, I know who he is. I need to know who he is to even put him on. So this is what we'll be talking about today. And the but today is that but Paul now goes on to indicate that there are times when believers are not accepting of weak faith, like we just read in Romans 14.1. This is the act of identity theft I want to talk to you today about. And there are three headings that I'd like to give you to understand, or to, to, to give today the theme of identity theft. The process of identity theft, the process of identity theft, the prevention of identity theft, and the penalty of identity theft. The process of identity theft, the prevention of identity theft, and the penalty of identity theft. So let's look at Romans 14, 2 and 3. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. So here we have what I'm calling the process of identity. This is how identity theft works. First of all, it begins by comparing ourselves not to Christ, but to other believers. See, we have a conscience, a conscience, and our backgrounds we bring to the church when we come to the Lord. But those have been freed and transformed by our faith in Christ. Whatever your background is and whatever your conscience are, they are now free and clean, and we are unified more in Christ than we are separated by our culture, our traditions, our practices, our backgrounds. Doesn't matter age, doesn't matter ethnicity, it doesn't matter if you come from the other side of the world. And here we have an example of an identity battle. So what are we, what are we talking about here? The one person's faith who, who allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. This is the Jewish-Gentile struggle. 
This is the Jewish Gentile identity struggle. For the Jewish Christians were still holding to the dietary laws of the Jewish faith. And the one thing they were trying to prevent, which was very obscene to them, was the eating of tainted meat. Meat that was tainted because it had been worshipped to idols in the pagan world. And this was happening all around Rome, of course. But the Gentile Christians didn't have an issue with that. They were free in their ability to worship God without that constraint. Here we have tainted meat versus cultural traditions. Here we have this struggle of identity. Does that still apply to us today? Can we press this point further today, dear friends? In the true pursuit of freedom we now have, we want to forget ourselves and consider worthless those who limit their freedoms in Christ. In the true freedom we now have, we want to forget ourselves, we want to forget who we are, and we want to consider worthless those who limit their freedoms in Christ. That's this line about contempt. Right? I'm me, you're you, you are different than I am in our cultural traditions and our practices and, and preferences. You're not as good as I am. Contempt. But also in the true pursuit of holiness, wanting to do and be what God wants us to do and be, that we now want, we forget ourselves and harshly judge those who pursue holiness with a freedom we do not yet have. So those who are more freeing in their dispositions of practices and preferences that do not, and let me stress here, do not go against the scriptures. We look at them sometimes and go, nah, that doesn't feel right. I'm limiting myself over here as a good, godly person. Why aren't you? And I'm over here going, um, I can do anything in Christ, you know. I'm not violating the scriptures. You are not as good as me. We're judging and holding each other in contempt at the same time. This principle, again, applies to preferences and traditions that we carry as worshipers of God. Any preference or tradition, personal or in the church, that is not strictly prohibited by scriptures in words or in principle is to be guided by the wisdom of Christ, by his mercy and acceptance, and by our consciences, which have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. We need to accept each other. Romans 14.1, accept. We need to be unified. We need to have one identity. Christ was never divided about who he was. We must never be divided also. I like this quote about Paul from F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar and a commentator on Romans. Paul enjoyed his Christian liberty to the full. Never was a Christian more thoroughly emancipated than he from unchristian inhibitions and taboos. So completely was he emancipated from spiritual bondage that he was not even in bondage to his emancipation. Look at that. So free was he. Now remember, who's Paul? Paul is the Jew's Jew, a Pharisee's Pharisee. You, he is the most cutting-edge, academic, and practical Jew there is when it comes to being holy and faithful. But he's, now that he's freed in Christ, he doesn't let that bondage come back into his life. He conformed to the Jewish way of life when he was in Jewish society as cheerfully as when he went along in Gentile ways when he was living with Gentiles. Jew was, uh, he was both, and he says, I am all things to all people. The interests of the gospel and the highest well-being of men and women were paramount considerations with him. To this, he subordinated 
everything else. Everything else. Every preference, every tradition pushed it down. The gospel and the well-being of his brothers and sisters. Do we have these fights today? Do we have fights? That's a strong word. Do we have these discussions today in the church where preferences can sometimes divide us? You know, there's no choir up here, right? There's uh, loud rock and roll music sometimes. Um, we have these, these preferences. We, these are part of our culture and our traditions growing up in the church. And I praise God that we have these discussions because they need to point us back to unity. But one that we've, we've come across often is, is the issue of alcohol. And I will use this as an example. Some of us have chosen to limit our freedom to drink, which I, I, I believe wholeheartedly, and I think the scriptures do not, do not teach that drinking in and of itself is bad. There's too many examples contrary to that. But it is, many of us have been given the conviction by the Holy Spirit that drinking is bad for us, and so we limit ourselves. Many of us do not hold that conviction, and they are free. But isn't it a, an issue that can divide us? So much so that we want to say, no, it is all or nothing. It is all or nothing. And that is not a good place to be. That is not a good place to be. The process of identity theft. Let's continue. Romans 14, 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master's servant stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. And there it is. And then it happens. In an instant, when we show contempt or judge harshly another brother or sister, we have stolen what is not ours to steal, the identity of a righteous master. You have stolen the identity of one who has the right to judge. You are impersonating a magistrate, making a decision you have no right to make, stealing the identity of another. You take upon yourself an identity that is not yours. But you know what else happens? When you take an identity that is not yours, you lose your own identity. You lose, in that same instance, you forget who you really are, a servant to a holy master, righteous and merciful, who will carry you through any judgment. You forget that you have been purchased with a price, that you are a child of God. It's not a good thing to forget, is it? So when we come across each other as brothers and sisters in the church and we have these discussions, let us remember who we truly are. First of all, we are in Christ. We are one body. We are one flesh. We cannot be divided. We should not be divided. That is the process of identity theft. Beginning to look at each other, not as a comparison in, for, to Christ, but as just a comparison to each other in our culture and traditions. Judging each other or showing contempt for each other. The Gentile Christians showed contempt for the Jewish Christians who came back. Like, you, guys are, you guys left. Yeah, we, don't want, we don't want you here anymore. And the Jewish Christians judged harshly the freedom of the Gentile Christians. Now we are not Jews and Gentiles here in this room. We're all united. But we are hymns and praise music, right? We are morning service and evening service. We are choir and uh, worship singers. We have these in our midst, and we need to prevent them. So I'd like to move on to the second point today, the prevention of identity theft. We have to prevent identity theft. 
I remember those couple years ago, I remember some commercials, Identity Lock or Life Lock, where this gentleman in the commercial, his social security number was flying by to everybody who could see on a big truck, and he's like, I'm not worried, I've got Identity, I've got identity Lock. I've got Life Lock or whatever. The, and there are many of these services out there that try to uh, help us avoid what is a big problem. Nine million people have their identity stolen every year in the United States. Some estimates there are 10,000 identity theft rings out there. Imagine my surprise when I, I got a letter from the, from the IRS one morning, and it said, um, you owe us a lot of back taxes. And I said, honey, did I make $40,000 more than I claimed? Because, boy, I don't remember that money, but it must have, we must have had a good time. She goes, no, Sam, you did not make $40,000. Well, somebody made $40,000 extra who used my name and social security number. So on this 20-page IRS maze of documents I find here, oh, it was in Georgia making baskets, and it was in South Carolina picking strawberries. And then I said, honey, did I make baskets in Georgia? As you get a letter from the IRS, sometimes you, start, you stop thinking rationally. Did I pick strawberries in South Carolina last year? Said, no, Sam, you did not. You were a professor at Ohio. Calm down. I, my identity had been stolen for this purpose. Imagine my surprise, I call a social security number, and I have evidences, I had maps, I had signed affidavits, you know, I had websites. I was never in South Carolina or Georgia during these alleged times working. You know, I think I was going to fax the IRS, my PhD. I'm like, I don't think PhDs work in strawberry fields. They could. They might. You know, and I've picked before. I call this lady. I get her on the phone. I said, ma'am, I have a big problem. I have, my identity's been stolen. She goes, she looked me up. She goes, okay, thank you. I said, what? Don't you want proof? She goes, no. This happens all the time. Now, the IRS sends me every year a special secret pin. So if this pin is not on my IRS form, they won't accept it, my return. So, so, so which kind of creeps me out that they know where I live. Every year they send me this special pin. I like to be anonymous, but um, that's one way that they are preventing identity theft for me personally. And I, I'm thankful for it. I don't have to worry about it. I get this pin number. I put it on. They know that it's legitimate. Um, but how can you and I prevent this identity theft that we do not want to make in the church? How do we lock in our identity? Well, there's two ways, and I, 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 I began this by talking about them. We have to know who our identity, what our identity is, and we have to show what our identity is. And God likes to work backwards. He likes to work from the external to the internal. So if you look at Romans 14, 5, and 6, God's going to show us how we show our identity to the world. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives, gives thanks to God. How do we show our identity? How do we prevent identity theft? By giving thanks to the object of our identity, God himself. And remember, giving thanks is a very, can be a very public display. You're giving thanks in prayer. You're giving thanks when you speak to other brothers and sisters. You're giving thanks when you're speaking to the world and say, I give thanks. I give thanks that I do or do not eat meat. I give thanks that I do or do not eat vegetables. 
I give thanks that I do or do not sing hymns. I give thanks that I do or do not have a choir in my church. doesn't matter. I give thanks. That's how we show it does not matter. We have to show it, but we also have to know it. Romans 14, 7, and 9. And this is, Paul always goes to the heart of the gospel, to the heart of our identity. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Do you know that truth, that you are not alone? You have been purchased with a price. You are in Christ. You are also not alone. You are part of a church. So your life is no longer your own. You have no more rights, American Christian. Only God has rights. Only God has rights as the creator. We have no rights. And now, when we covenant with each other, we are each other's. And we are also always the Lord's. We are permanently identified with Christ and with each other. For how long? Forever. For eternity. How? How did this happen? Well, Christ conquered the world by living a perfect life, never disobeying the Father and always turning to him for everything. He also conquered sin and death itself by dying, as we see here, dying on the cross for those who would believe in him and his sacrifice. And he completed his victory over all man's sin and the devil's work in creation by being resurrected from the dead. God knows his identity, and God shows his identity. Let me show you how God has shown his identity. John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We worship a God who shows his identity as a Savior every day. And we know that Christ himself knew who he was quite clearly. John 10, 14, and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Christ knew who he was. Do you? And the Holy Spirit does both. John 14, 15 through 17, and 25 through 26. If you love me, keep my commands, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you and remind you who you are, my disciples. See, we've lost our identity. We lost it a long time ago when man disobeyed God. We lost the identity as the special creation of God. We're the special creation of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We were made in God's image, endowed with fullness of dignity and worth that come with this reality. But we rebelled and turned away from God, and our relationship with Him was broken. We lost who we truly were meant to be. We lost our true identity. And with that break and with that loss, we now must be judged and punished by a righteous and holy God, for we are unholy and unrighteous. 
And we must now deal with this punishment and the inevitability of this decision and this judgment that without Christ, without the revelation through Christ, we would be forever and ever in hell. That would be our identity. That would be who we are. But God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and me so that we might know who we truly were meant to be, and that is sons of God, daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ. So this morning, if you do not know who you are, and if you do not know who Christ is, I beg and plead with you to find out. Ask me. Ask one of the brothers and sisters here. We will tell you gladly who Christ is, who we are, why we believe what we believe, why it's so important to believe what we believe, why we know who we are. And I pray that this would open your eyes to who you are. You have been purchased with a price. You are a living testimony to the good news of Christ Jesus. You will now be called a servant of God, his adopted child, a temple of his Holy Spirit, his body, his bride, his living sacrifice, heirs to his glory, his slave, his brother or sister, his disciple, his sheep, true sons and true daughters of God himself. Brothers and sisters, if we can remember those words, we might not thieve the identity of God himself sit in judgment upon others. If we might remember that the best way to lock in our identity, the best way to lock in who we are is to remember that we are sons and daughters of God, that we are disciples of Christ. And the Bible is full of reminders, titles, names, and labels to, that we should imprint on our hearts, that we should imprint in our minds about who we are. So we've talked about the process of identity theft. We've talked about, what did we just talk about? The prevention of identity theft. Now I'd like to finish by talking about the penalty of identity theft. Romans 10, 14, 10 through 12. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Here God has laid out the penalty of identity theft. The fact that when we judge, we take God's judgment seat. Only he has the right to judge all mankind and all creation. And his identity as judge is one of a holy and righteous judge. He is completely empowered and with all authority over all creation. We do not have that power. We do not have the authority. We cannot sit in that seat. The penalty for us is that we will be judged accordingly. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, although many today do not believe in God or do not have their identity in Christ, one day everyone will believe. One day, everyone will believe. And on that day, it will be too late for many. The penalty is severe. The penalty is dire. We must preach the gospel to those around us and tell them that they have an identity waiting for them in Christ. 
if they repent and believe, if they repent from their sinful, rebellious ways and believe in the sacrifice of Christ and believe in Christ as Son of God, they will be saved. They will finally know who they truly are and who God meant them to be. Sons of light. Daughters of light. These thoughts and these meditations really sprang up in me as I'm struggling to be Christ every day with my wife, with my newborn child, as we sang earlier this morning. What a, what a beautiful picture, um, assuming you get some sleep. Uh, still, though, there's nothing more sweet than being sleep-deprived because of a newborn. Uh, um, but this all began in me, or this continued in me. The Lord brought this to my attention as I was sitting down with my three older boys, teaching them a catechism. And there's a, there's a new catechism out. It's called New City Catechism. 52 questions to instruct those young to know more about God and to know more about who they are. We used to do catechisms a lot in the church, and we've kind of fallen away. And there's a, re, there's a resurgence of, of, of interest in saying, how do we teach the children more about God and more about the faith? And one way is to have them memorize question and answer. And scripture, right? Praise God. So I decided to, as, I, as I'm trying to be a better father, as I'm trying to be more of the identity that God has given me as a leader in my home, to spiritually raise up the next generation, to sacrifice for my wife, I said, I'm going to do this catechism with my children. And the first question we, we came across, it's one we have to memorize together. What is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and death? And here's the answer that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that pierced me, that we are not our own. We are not. We belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Is this your identity? Is this my identity? As a believer, do you sometimes forget your identity, losing it? And in its place, take on the identity of God himself, judging the traditions and preferences of other brothers and sisters, causing quarrels, division, and disunity? Do you commit identity theft against God? If so, be reminded that you are not your own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And to you who do not believe, have you lost your identity as a special creation of God, made in his image, are you also committing identity theft right now? Placing yourself as God of your own life. Completely rejecting the one true God who deserves your love and worship. I pray you have heard the good news today. That, and that good news is that there is forgiveness offered. There is mercy shown. There is grace extended and a new life and identity waiting for you as an adopted child of God. There's no one in the universe you will ever want to belong to than God. No one. There is no identity you will ever want to have than as his servant, his good and faithful servant. And there is no identity you will ever want to teach other than the identity of Christ and the gospel. So I pray for us this morning that this is exactly what we will commit to do. Stop stealing what is God's. Start accepting and joyfully giving thanks for what is ours. Let us pray.